The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to the last of our summer Top of the Pods episodes. A new season of the Art Newspaper Podcast starts next week. For the last pick of our highlights from the 200 interviews we've done over the last two years, we're focusing on David Hockney and the School of London. A bit later, you'll hear my conversation with the critic Martin Gayford about his book Modernists and Mavericks. But first, my interview with Hockney from November 2018. We spoke just before his 1972 painting, Portrait of an Artist, Pool with Two Figures, went on sale in Christie's post-war and contemporary art auction in New York on the 15th of November. It ended up selling for $90.3 million, breaking the record for the highest price paid at auction for the work of a living artist. The picture was particularly prized because it's one of a series of three-metre-wide double portraits he made in the late 1960s, and also one of his much-loved swimming pool paintings. I met Hockney at the Royal Academy in London, where he was collecting an award from Norway's Queen Sonja Art Foundation for his lifetime contribution to the art of printmaking. Can we talk about um, your painting portrait of an artist, Paul with Two Figures, which is about to come to auction at Christie's? I'm interested in the, this extraordinary genesis of the painting, the fact that it, there was this uh, serendipitous moment where you, you saw two photographs, two different photographs on the floor of your... Was it of your studio? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that suggested a, comp- a composition for this great painting. Uh, well, yes, and I did, I did. I started a painting of it, but after a while, I thought the angle I'd done it wrong because he couldn't see. He couldn't actually see the swimmer. So that this is the standing so, figure. Couldn't look. Uh, and I wanted it in a show in New York. So I went down to where this had been photographed, um, which was in uh, the south of France. I went back there and did some drawings and then came back to London. And I did the painting in about three weeks, but I was working 12 hours a day on it. And we should say, I mean, it's a three-metre-wide painting, so that's, that's an extraordinary effort to yeah. complete that, a painting in three weeks on that scale. Yeah, yeah, it was, because Mr and Mrs Clark and Percy had taken six months. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, did you... I mean, it is obviously the same exact scale as Mr and Mrs Clark and Percy and the Henry Geldzahl, of, although all those double portraits. Yeah. And yet it's seen, in, in a way... Visually, it feels very different, and you were also very interested in this idea of the the figures existing in two very different spaces, one in the pool and one standing looking at the figure in the pool. Yeah, yeah. I thought the painting was quite successful, really, and then we had it in the show in New York and I sold it. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in the way that swimming pools presented two kinds of uh, things to you, both a kind of idyll of a, of a kind of lifestyle, but also from a sort of painterly point of view, a real challenge in terms of depicting water. Yeah. Can you tell me something about that? Well, um, I'd always been interested in uh, water, glass. I remember 
George Herbert's poem, a man may look on glass, on it may stay his eye, or if he pleaseth through it pass, and there the heaven espy, which is a terrific thing about looking on glass and then through it. And uh, I realized in California, the swimming pools were a bit like this. You could look on the surface of the water, or you could look through it. And uh, so, I mean, in California, when I'd arrived there, I flew there. I waited uh, till they'd built an airport before I went to LA. I wouldn't have been in a covered wagon going there. <laughs> uh, but um, I began to notice the pools, and then and it was this problem, I thought. And so I uh, devised ways to do it uh, that didn't look like photographs of it. Photographs of it are just a frozen moment. And I knew dancing lines weren't frozen and they weren't. Uh, and so that's what I did. And uh, I only did about 12 pool paintings. I mean, I didn't do that many. Lots of people would have churned them out, but <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I was always interested in other things as well, really. Did, uh, a lot of people have seen in your pool paintings a kind of uh, knowing kind of nod to abstraction and almost a criticism of abstraction is that was that in your mind or is that an art historian reading that well, into it um nowadays i mean i can see why european art needed abstraction chinese art and japanese art didn't because they always knew what abstraction was. I mean, a scholar's rock is an abstraction. The Japanese print is an abstraction. Well, the reason abstraction was needed in Europe, I think, was because of the photograph. Uh, people saw the photograph and thought, well, if that's going to be the photograph. The photograph needed shadows, didn't it? Because optics need shadows. And uh, I have pointed out, for instance, in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, which is a museum of the 19th century, and when it begins, there's lots and lots of chiaroscura. But when it ends, most of it is gone. That's Van Gogh, uh, Matisse, Bonnard. But there's no explanation given for this. Well, I know it, I know it. Um, so abstraction was necessary uh, and Great claims were made for it, actually, in the 50s and 60s. And I thought they'd gone much too much, actually. <laughs> um, so, 
But, I mean, I was influenced by those ideas. I mean, uh, uh, abstraction is, I mean, what would you have otherwise? A naturalism that's not that good and things. Uh, uh, but I'm still going on with this now. I mean, I'm still fascinated by it. Uh, but I can see now ways ahead. I mean, I can, actually, I am. We're here at the Royal Academy because you're being presented with an award for a lifetime achievement in printmaking. Can you tell me about what printmaking means to you, how important it's been to your practice? Well, the first things I did in prints were lithographs, which I did at the Bradford School of Art. I just printed five or six of them. Then at the Royal College of Art, when they used to give you free hardboard, but I'd run out of paint and I hadn't much money, so I went in the etching department because they gave the plates away and so I could carry on working, um, and I did. And um, I just did some etchings, and I didn't print many then. And uh, I then got a prize for one of them uh, in 1961. And with that money, I went to New York, uh, actually. And that, in turn, became a subject for a whole group of prints. Yes, it did. Uh, Because uh, when I was on the Bowery and you saw all these homeless people, which there weren't in London then, and so I thought New York was more like Hogarth's London. And uh, so I thought of doing a version of it, a rake's progress, and uh, I made one. Um, and then the Royal College of Art, on seeing me doing them, then suggested I could extend it to uh, 24 etchings. And I wasn't sure about that. Anyway, in the end, I did uh, 16, which is twice what uh, Hogarth did. Then I I sold those. I sold the whole editions for £5,000. Must have been extraordinarily liberating for you to do that. Yeah, and then I went to California with that money and stayed for six months and did a lot more painting then. Um, So printmaking certainly helped me for a long time. And then uh, I I did some more prints in California... Then I did some with Ken Tyler. At, um, He's a master printer, a great master printer. Yeah. And then I did, I did those paper pools with him. But they, 
weren't technically prints. Each one was an individual piece. Um, but we did those, and then uh, then I made more prints in Gemini, and then I didn't do any for a while. Then I started drawing on an iPad and just sent them out to friends. That's all I did with them, and then eventually we printed some of those. I mean, once I'd got an iPad, I thought the iPad was a, a new medium, really. You draw on glass um, with a lighted background and things. And uh, when I, I was one of the first people to get an iPad. I mean, the moment it was out in California, we got one sent to Bridlington. And uh, I experimented with it for six months. And I got rather good on it then. Um, I tried out every brush and things on this brushes app. And um, then I realized I could do the arrival of spring in 2011 on the iPad. And I drew about 90 actually giving an account of the arrival of spring i mean it began with the snow on walgate and ends with uh, all the blossom and things and that took uh, four months actually i made about 90 but in the end we just reduced it to 50 which was in that show at the Royal Academy. And then later on, we printed those, yeah. So do you see, in a way, the, the surface of an iPad as something akin to a plate or a lithographic stone? Uh, not quite, because you're drawing on it with colour. I mean, um, the colour was... Uh, quite subtle. I would draw on it and then print them. And it was the print I was interested in. So sometimes uh, you might have four greens on the iPad and you can't quite get them printing. So I would exaggerate that, I mean, and go back and print them. I mean, that's uh, what I felt I had to do. Um, I'd uh, drawn with a computer a long time before, but uh, we'd had to go down to Wiltshire to do this because the computer was the size of a room or something. I mean, now it's on an iPad. I mean, it's... Uh, but... Uh, when I drew on it, it was always a little late. You draw a line and then the line would appear. Well, that's not much good for a draftsman, not much good at all. So 
I'd, I mean, I'd just do some drawings on it, then I'd abandon it. And it never got good again until uh, about, I mean, it was after 20 hundred, um, uh, when I drew on a tablet then, and you to draw looking here and draw there and things like that. And I did uh, some portraits on it and things. But uh, when I got an iPad, I thought this is really subtle because you can, I mean, the line appears exactly at the same time. Uh, and that's um, mostly what I've done in print. Uh, but I am planning uh, now to go to Normandy in March and I'm going to do the arrival of spring in Normandy next year. Do you anticipate it being significantly different to the arrival of spring where you've yes. done it before? Well, first of all, there's a lot more blossom. There's apple blossom, cherry blossom, pear blossom, uh, blackthorn blossom, hawthorn blossom. Uh, also, I've just been in Normandy and I saw the bio-tapestry and I think I might do one like the bio-tapestry, begin with trees in the winter and things. It's a great work, that, marvellous work. And I did notice it contained no shadows. So my question for the art historian was when did the shadows start in European art? Yeah. Did you get an answer? No, I haven't. But <laughs> I have an answer. Uh, I mean, it's about 1420. Right. Yeah. We've heard today that there's going to be a Van Gogh and Hockney exhibition. I can't let you go without you telling us a bit about that. Well, um, they'd always wanted to do one. I mean, they have other artists there. Uh, and they'd asked me two years ago, and I couldn't do it then because of uh, other things. Uh, now they're doing it. It's opening in the end of February. Uh, I mean, <laughs> me and Van Gogh... <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, there's not much competition, really. Uh, but um, Van Gogh is a great, great painter. I mean, he, I'm pointing out, he could see very, very clearly, very clearly. And he knew he could see clearly. And uh, I think I can see quite clearly, not quite like Van Gogh. Um, but uh, Van Gogh didn't have any friends much. And I think he arranged that because that's why in three years he did all our work. I mean, he couldn't have done it if he'd have had too many friends, I don't think. Um, 
He's a fascinating artist. I just read that uh, biography of him. It's very, very good. But it just... I'll tell you what, he misses out. I mean, it makes out he was a rather miserable person and uh, and things. But when he was painting, he wasn't miserable. I mean, he loved painting and he could... As I say, he could see very clearly. He had ideas about colour and space. And and the colours sing, don't they? They're joyous, some yeah, of those colours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're still joyous, aren't they? They still are. And uh, so I agreed to do the show. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, uh, it might be OK, I don't know. But anyway, I'm going. I think a lot of other people will be going too. David Hockney, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Now, the critic Martin Gayford is one of the few people who can claim to have been painted by both Hockney and Lucian Freud. In recent years, Gayford's published several books relating to these two artists, including Man with a Blue Scarf, a kind of diary of sitting for Freud, and History of Pictures, a collaboration with Hockney exploring how artists have represented the world across the ages. His recent book, Modernists and Mavericks, looks at Freud and Hockney again, but this time in the context of their peers in post-war London, from Francis Bacon to Bridget Riley. I spoke to Martin at the National Portrait Gallery in London in June 2018. Martin, I think the striking thing about this book is that where other books have been very about very close connections with individual artists, this is very much looking at a broader scene. Can you tell me a bit about why you wanted to do that? Well, uh, I have uh, this archive of, uh, of uh, re- interviews with uh, uh, artists uh, which stretches back into the late 1980s. So uh, I've talked to almost all the important people in this story and also to dealers and uh, curators as well. So uh, it struck me that it was possible to do, or it might be possible to do, a sort of, uh, I've described it as a choral work, a, 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 a a, a, a work which is something like an oral history, but with a lot of different voices in it. And um, what I was hoping to do was to uh, get at the way in which these people's lives and careers and styles were interwoven. And everyone was living in London, uh, a lot of them drinking and socialising and meeting each other, falling out... Uh, <laughs> Uh, arguing, but there was interchange interaction going on all the time, so that actually I thought it was worthwhile trying to do, deal with it as a as a whole question, restricting myself to the genre of painting or the medium of painting. It's interesting that because there have been various attempts to try and sort of harness these artists into groups, the most famous being the School of London, which mm. which is of course coined by an artist in Kitai, yes. but it's. It, they've always seemed inadequate and the artists have rejected it, haven't they? 
Yes, the art. Yes, the artists don't like the labels. In fact, the artists, no artists like labels. <laughs> Virtually, it's extremely un, uncommon to find an artist who accepts a label. But in this case, School of London it is particularly unexplanatory, actually, and wasn't really intended to describe a movement in the first place by Kitai. I think what happened historically is Kitai came up with this phrase, meaning London's a bit more important artistically than has been realised, and that there are there is this group of major artists working in London. That's all he meant to start off with. And then paint, uh, painting was revived in the 80s and uh, people started to try and uh, analyse it as a group. And in fact, all the different accounts of the School of London have different people included in it. So there's absolutely no, it wasn't a group, there's no manifesto, there's no consensus about what it was, who was in it. I mean, is Howard Hodgkin in the School of London? It's it's impossible to say. He's in some books. <laughs> Indeed. So, so tell me about the sort of the connections then, because of course there were very important duos and trios and conversations in pubs and restaurants and all that yes. kind of stuff so they, in a way they were they were they were very strong alliances forged yes there were certainly social networks and and indeed interconnections between different networks so uh uh you and Uglo, i discovered was a, a great friend of uh leon kossoff's who you, you would ex- wouldn't expect they seem to belong to slightly different uh, uh, groupings, but actually, there were, uh, that if you did a diagram of it, you'd get one of these sort of skeins, spider's web skeins. Uh, certainly, there was socialising in Soho, and uh, that was particularly Bacon's headquarters, Wheeler's Restaurant on Compton Street, um, the Colony uh, Room Drinking Club on Dean Street. You would have found quite a lot of major artists on any given day, perhaps drinking and talking, chatting in those places. Whether those were the places where people talked about art is is a, is a, another question, actually. My, my informants say, actually, on the whole, uh, one of the attractions of the colony room, for example, is people didn't talk about art, so they knew each other, but maybe, maybe they talked about painting more in the studio or something. But Bacon was talking to people, on the other hand... Uh, almost nobody really imitated Bacon. He would be a most impossible, difficult model. So would Lucian Freud. Actually, so would uh, so really would Arbuck. They're all so generous. Uh, these people who are conventionally included in the um, School of London and all completely different. And actually, Frank Arbuck told me that when he first encountered Bacon and Freud, uh, Bacon's painting was the opposite of what he was trying to do with that sort of you know, this he says a dramatic coup de foudre that Bacon was aiming at that wasn't what I wanted to do and uh, he said Lucian's painting uh, which he used for which he used the word limning which is uh, a word usually used for Elizabethan miniatures Jacobean miniatures this sort of pre- precise detail that was the opposite of what, what Frank was trying to do and Lucian actually noticed uh, noted although he later became an, an avid collector of Auerbach's work when he first saw it, it struck him as being a particularly threatening kind of mess. So there was actually, there was not that much common ground. There was more common aspiration and perhaps just taking the subject seriously. 
That's it. In a way, there was a commitment to excellence in whichever kind of language they were using. Is that fair? Yes. I, I think one thing Bacon did was uh, was set the target really high. In fact, almost impossibly high. So he, he felt he almost always missed it himself. But uh, but the idea was you would aim for, even though you were never going to get to Rembrandt level or Picasso level, that was really that was really the point of it. There wasn't any point in doing it uh, and just to turn out product, just to produce a sort of reasonably saleable uh, work. You were always aiming at producing something really marvellous. And Bacon's made this, uh, I thought, uh, I think rather wonderful remark. That you always hope the next picture will obliterate all the others. One of the things about these artists is not only is their sort of fundamental style very differently, but the ways that they work are all very different as well, aren't they? I mean, you think about the, especially the difference between Bacon and Freud. Yes. Uh, well, it's, if one were to categorise artists according to speed on a sort of... Uh, uh, speedometer. Uh, uh, Bacon's probably was probably quite close to the, to, to the sort of Van Gogh. I would perhaps be the fastest painter in art history. who could produce a major painting in an hour. Uh, Bacon, according to Lucien, would often do something in a day. He'd go to the studio and uh, Bacon would say, "Well, this is what I did today. Well, what do you think of it?" Whereas uh, Lucien couldn't paint at anything like that rate. It just was impossible for him to do what 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 he wanted to do he could only only do it very very slowly so he was uh his rate for producing a, a medium size uh, portrait head would be about six months of uh of sitting several times a week and how long was the painting that you sat for how long did that, that take? it was about it that was about it i started at the end of one october and we finished at the end of the following june can you tell me a bit about the ritual? Because he did stick to very particular structures in, in painting, didn't he? Yes, and in his life, although he's, uh, one of his beliefs, in a way, is a, a bit of a uh, little fantasy he had about himself was that he didn't have any habits, but he certainly had a timetable. He, uh, his life, uh, professional life, operated entirely according to a rigid attention to time. And uh, you had to, if, if you were painting was a, an evening painting, as mine was a night painting. You had to turn up at the appointed time. It was six o'clock in my case. And the painting had to be done in, in darkness by artificial light. And it would have been quite impossible for him to paint a night picture by natural light or vice versa. So what happened towards the end, because we started as the nights were drawing in and it was dark, it was probably dark by six when I arrived. And by the following June, you know, it, was, it didn't get dark until <laughs> the half past nine or something. We had to draw the shutters and create artificial darkness in order to carry on working. Can you tell me about the conversations that you might have had when he was painting you? There are some painters who are very, very verbally communicative when they're painting. It allows them a sort of to enter into a rhythm. But what was Freud like? Well, he was a brilliant conversationalist and uh, he talked extremely well in a way which I suspect was adapted to different sitters. So uh, in my case, I got a lot of reminiscences about, say, Francis Bacon or meeting Picasso or Giacometti or um, uh, things which he doubtless felt I, uh, correctly I would be interested in. Other people who might get horse racing or it, it, uh, all sorts of subjects he, he could talk about. Uh, uh, when, he, when he had uh, child sitters, he talked quite a lot about animals. Uh, and uh, I think it was important uh, to Lucian to, to keep the, the sitter 
uh, as entertained as possible because of this very prolonged uh, working process he had that uh, his secret anxiety was the sitter would just get fed up and say well I've had I've had enough of this I'm, I'm just not going to turn up anymore and that did happen um Harold Pinter is an example of somebody who turned up for a few sittings and then said, I just had no idea what this was going to be. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't do this. <laughs> so there's there's the beginning of a picture of Harold Pinter, like a couple of Harold Pinter's eyes staring out, out of the canvas. Uh, so Lucien uh, tried as hard as he could to make it good and entertaining. Let's move on to Hockney now. Yes. I'm interested in this moment because the numbers for Freud and Bacon, Bacon, Bacon sustained success through most of his career. Yes. But certainly Freud had a sort of a big dip in his career, which yes. seems impossible now when you think how, how much his paintings sell for at all, yes. should, et cetera, et cetera. But he did have a big dip, which sort of coincided with Hockney's rise and, and pop art and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Did you did you have you had a chance to talk did you have a chance to talk with, with Freud and have you had a chance to talk with Hockney about that? The connection between the sort of fifties Soho scene and the pop art moment, as it were. I think it was not so much pop as abstraction. The first thing uh, David Hockney said to me about this period, he said, the first thing to, to know about the 60s was abstraction ruled. And that actually, although Hockney was very successful virtually from the word going, go, was, was uh, something he was very aware of, that he was virtually the only figurative painter in Kasmin's stable. Kasmin had this very fashionable, extremely elegant gallery off Bond Street, which is sort of early white cube. But most of his artists were Carlfield abstraction, in fact. Uh, Kenneth Noland and um, uh, Morris Lewis and uh, all sorts of big American artists, uh, Anthony Caro and Richard Smith. And Hockney actually was almost the, uh, the only exception. And it's... There is an argument that Hockney in some ways wouldn't have become Hockney if he hadn't been in this environment where people he was exhibiting not next to, but just after people were doing these great big abstract paintings. And the, um, a lot of his 60s work actually sort of work, it is a reaction to colour field abstraction, different kinds of abstraction, but working off it, but moving back into figurative areas. Now, Hockney is... Um, again, it's interesting that we're talking about mavericks. We're talking about yes. artists that can't really be fitted into schools. Yes. He, he would certainly would never define himself as a pop artist, even though he yes. sort of crosses over with it a bit. He emerged from a scene in which um, Kitai was seen as a real god at the Royal yes. College, and I think again that's something that's been somewhat forgotten. Kitai was a real was perceived as a real genius in that moment. Yes, and Kitai's reputation—it's uh, a very odd case. His reputation took a terrible tumble in Britain as a result of the Tate show in 1994. And I would say that he's probably a suitable case for reassessment, and uh, also that his reputation probably hasn't tumbled to the extent elsewhere. A few years ago, I saw an exhibition in Hamburg of Kitai's work, uh, which was, uh, I thought, made a very strong case for Kitai as a... Uh, a now, as far as we're concerned, underrated but very interesting and uh, probably a rather important artist. However, some, something which I probably wouldn't have liked to hear, but I thought was tr- true when I saw that show. He, 
I'd just been looking at Max Beckman and German Expressionists, and I, w- I walked to the next building and looked at Kitan. He looked more in context, actually, in that European uh, painterly context than he does in London. I thought the all-too-human show Tate Britain at the moment, which has got him opposite Michael Andrews, uh, is actually a rather... St- it's one of those comparisons that on paper seems right but visually seems all wrong because the colour range and the way they handle paint is so different but, uh, but yeah to, to summarise Kitto I think his, his, uh, his star may rise again indeed Hockney uh, it seems to me is an artist who doesn't tend to like looking back is that your experience of him did you find that he was very forthcoming in terms of thinking about this period of the 50s and 60s well he he, he reminisces but i think as far as his own work is concerned he said uh when the uh big retrospective was uh being put together that uh, essentially throughout his life he'd never looked back and I think that's a sort of psychologically healthy frame of mind, possibly even a central frame of mind for uh, anybody who's trying to do something creative. I mean, Frank Albach said the same thing to me, which I think is in, is in the book, that uh, actually if you don't think the next thing you're, you're going to do is going to be better than the last, there's not much point in carrying on. So you always have to have that belief and hope. So you don't dwell on the past, although you may be pleasantly surprised by your own work when you see it again. I mean, Lucien Fogg was always a bit anxious when old works surfaced and came to auction. I was like, with, whether they'd be good enough, whether he, perhaps he shouldn't have released them from the studio. Um, and I, I think Hockney was uh, was pleased, actually, to, 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 to see his work laid out at that big tape show, uh, that it's, it did seem to him to hold up. And what about um, the, the process of sitting for him? You've had these very long conversations about art history. Yes. Do, do, do the conversations continue through the sitting process? Does that, is, is that all part of a continuum or are those, or those moments when you're sitting for him sort of very separated out from those conversations? Uh, David's method, certainly with the 82 portraits and Ones to Life, which my, the picture of me was one of, was very different um, really programmatically from uh, Lucian, so that every picture was supposed to take about 20 hours, which is maybe three days uh, sitting, something like, uh, approximately that, which is quite fast. It's, it's on that speedometer we were talking about. It's sort of closer to the f- speed painting than the, than the very <laughs> slow process. And uh, then, and I should think this is uh, normal with David, he was just concentrating extremely hard while he was painting, so uh, there was more or less silence. I mean, occasionally he'd say to his uh, assistant, Jean-Pierre, he'd say, could I have some Na- Naples yellow or could I have some Payne's grey here? On the-? And Jean-Pierre would come forward with a tube of paint, or that kind of thing, or you know, could you move your, your foot slightly to the left? That, But no anecdotes or the kind of thing which are uh, designed to entertain the the the, uh, the sitter of the sort that Lucien went in for. Now, in your conversations with him about art history, it seems to me that he thinks he's always trying to find a new angle on things. Again, again, this sort of sense of always searching for the new, always trying to find different perspectives on everything. Is that is that your experience of, of well? He certainly, uh, David, I would say, has a profoundly original mind, uh, and he is. 
a strikingly fearless person, which is perhaps a necessary qualification for being, becoming a major artist. So he's he, he has no nervousness at all about completely recasting art history or rereading it, what we normally talk about as art history, rather than just passively accepting it. Uh, and that was uh, part of the interest for me of, of doing this book with him, that he's got this reading of what... Uh, a picture involves uh, the, uh, the intimate connection between painting and photography and even film and computer graphics and uh, how these all belong together, which is not actually uh, a perspective that anybody else has ever articulated at any rate. Right. Now, tell me what you've learned from doing this book, looking back over these, over these uh, interviews about London in that post-war period. Do, do you feel it's any more sort of coherent as a period as a result of looking back? Or is it sort of, does it remain rather elusive and ungraspable in some way? Um, I think that uh, my conclusion, and also in a way starting point, is that is that the abstract and figurative parties, so to speak, were, were uh, much less widely separated than you that is conventionally thought. I mean, Bacon was rather rude about abstraction, uh, calling Jackson Pollock uh, as painting a load of old lace. But actually, he was also quite interested in abstract expression. And he was, his line was he was disappointed by it. He thought it would be better than it was. And Auerbach, uh, so roundly says he thinks the abstract expressionists were one of the great mo- moments in 20th century art. It's cubism then. Then the, the next big important thing that happened was abstract expressionism. So he he's very open to um, de Kooning and uh, Pollock and so forth. And a lot of the uh, artists I'm writing about actually belong in a sort of hard-to-define frontier zone. Howard Hodgkin, for example, a lot of it looks abstract. He, he insisted it was representational of emotional situations and sometimes it's a bit representational so he's sort of he's between the two poles um i think it it uh, my conclusion was that it it's hangs together but more like um uh, the maps that neil ferguson has in his book uh, called the tower and the square about networks in which networks have different poles and uh, they're connected by a multiple uh, uh, cobweb or cat's cradle of lines. I think it it worked like that. So there are preoccupations that run through a lot of people, but they're they're um, uh, expressed in different ways, and um, there are no real movements. I think. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Modernists and Mavericks, Bacon, Freud, Hockney and the London Painters is published by Thames and Hudson. Martin's latest book, The Pursuit of Art, Travels, Encounters and Revelations, again published by Thames and Hudson, is out on the 19th of September. And that's all for this week. You can catch up on all the latest art world news at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. The September print edition of the art newspaper is also out now. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. 
Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them. And if you enjoy it, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Join us next week for our first podcast of the new season. We talk to the actor Timothy Spall about Mrs Lowry and Son, the new film about the British painter L.S. Lowry, and we also have an interview with the artist Chris Ophelia and Jasmine Thomas-Gervin, who are showing together at the David Sverner Gallery in London. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.